green is the color we want to look at this morning. I almost feel like it's a Sesame Street lesson coming up, the color green or you know how those things work. But the green decorations that we put out, a green Christmas tree, green wreaths, green everything that we kind of put out, uh, speaks of the promise of new life. And when we think of Christmas, we kind of think of the gloom and the, of the skies and the greatness of the skies a lot of times that happen in the winter. But the birth of Christ also speaks of a promise of new life. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Someone back in 2009 in a Reader's Digest actually came up with this personality test based on how you decorate for Christmas. And she says this. She says, you have nothing but multicolored lights on your tree. You're an extrovert. So if you got a lot of multicolored lights, it means you're extroverted. If you only use white lights, you're the type who asks their guests to remove their shoes at the front door. Kind of hoity-toity. Um, if you use blinking lights on your tree, you have ADD. If your tree has homemade ornaments, you have lots of children. If you string popcorn and put it on a tree, you have way too much time on your hands. If you use nothing but red decorations, you secretly wish to live in a department store. And the rest of these are kind of for live trees. If your tree has a vague evergreen smell, it means you bought a healthy tree. If it has a strong evergreen smell, it says you sprayed it with too much pine saw. If your tree stinks, you probably have a dead bird in it somewhere. Just kind of a personality test on your Christmas trees. But when you think of Christmas, you think of a, a festive holiday, don't you? You think of families getting together, we think of food, we think of presents, we think of all these things, and we think of little kids getting up on Christmas morning and opening those presents and the wide-eyedness of all the things that happen. And we think of the decorations, and we think of all the colors, and in fact, coming back from Lincoln last night, we saw a lot of different lights, you know, as you're traveling through the country, and as flat as Illinois is, you can see it for miles and miles, and we would say, oh, look at those lights, and look at these lights, and all the different beauty that there is, and that's a good thing, because Christmas sits right in the midst of winter. Like I said, a lot of times with gray skies or gloomy skies, the trees are barren, the grass is brown, and offsetting all of this is all the colors of Christmas, the red, the green, the yellow, the blue, and the white. And it's probably because of those colors that Christmas is such a joyful holiday because people decorate all these things. And so we're going to look at the colors, and this morning is green. And when you look, you see green everywhere. There's green at the poinsettias. There's Christmas tree and out in front. This week, I hope we get the garland up around the big square out here in the big open area so there's even more green here and there as we look at all these things. And one reason green is used at Christmas is because it speaks of a time to come. Something to actually look forward to, a time called spring. One we look forward to all the time because we know the weather's going to start getting nicer and the days are getting longer, the grass starts to turn, the flowers start to come up, and everything becomes beautiful again. Christmas says new life is just around the corner. That's what I want us to see this morning. That when we look at Christmas and we look at the green and all that's all around us, that we know that new life is just around the corner. And Jesus even, or God even says in the book of Galatians that just at that right time, life will replace the death and decay that this world brings. We read in Galatians 4.4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. When the time had fully come, 
When the time was right, now think about that, when the time was right, when the time was perfect, in other words, God's time, God's choice, when God said it was ready, God sent the promise of life into a world filled with death and decay. Let me ask you a question. What does Galatians mean by when the time had fully come? What does that mean? We've read it before. I know we have. You've probably even studied this text. It means that God had sent a great, spent a great deal of time setting things up for Jesus to come in the flesh. That God prepared this world for this time. That the birth of a baby in a manger had been planned for centuries. Now in today's world, it's about nine months, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, that families get to prepare for this coming baby. And we make all these arrangements. But it says actually this took centuries. In the Bible we're told that back in the beginning of time, clear back in Genesis when Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, God came down and confronted them and pronounced a curse upon them. But when God turned to the serpent who tempted Eve, he promised him this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of a woman, he says, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So in other words, when we're thinking about this, when the promised child was to be born, when that time was right, when it was fulfilled, he wasn't going to be an offspring of a man and a woman. Okay? We have to grab that. This child was to be the offspring of a woman, and God tells Satan that the conflict will be between your offspring and hers. That's why Isaiah 7.14 prophesied this. Says the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That's that prophecy of a virgin birth. You see, this child was not going to be the offspring of a man and a woman, but born of a virgin. And that's huge for us to understand. So, another aspect of the prophecy in Genesis was that this promised child would suffer pain. That this baby would one day suffer this pain. It says his heel would be crushed. But in the process of his heel being crushed, he would deliver a, a blow, a mortal blow to Satan. And relieve him of a lot of his power, if not most of his power. And that took place when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from, rose from the grave on that third day. And we understand all that, I hope. And that was just the first prophecy that when the time had fully come, when the time was perfect, when the time was right, a promised child would be born to take away the power of Satan. So grab onto that. We can look at all the gifts that we give for Christmas and all the gifts that we have gotten for Christmas, but one of the gifts God gave us by sending his son is that he took the power of Satan away from us. I truly believe still today we give Satan way too much power, way too much credit. And I will tell you, he is alive and well, okay? He does have authority over the world and things in it. If not, the world wouldn't be going the way it is. And I'm not going to get into all the politics and all those kinds of things and all that garbage, but Satan does have that authority on this earth. But we give him way too much power. If something doesn't work in the church, a lot of times we blame Satan when it's really just a burned-out light bulb you know, or a throne breaker or something. Quit giving him that authority. 
You see, God proclaimed where this baby would be born. God proclaimed when he would be born. God proclaimed how he would live, even proclaimed how he would die and what he was being sent to do. So with over 300 direct prophecies and even over 100 hints from the Old Testament of what this Messiah would be like and what he would do, God had made a promise. God made a promise that a Messiah would come. And God gave these hundreds of prophecies to us declaring what the Messiah would be like and what the promise and these prophecies would fulfill. So understand this. With all these prophecies, even the ones that come straight out, even the hints, get this, God had a plan. God had a plan the whole time. God knew what he was doing, and the plan was this. That when the fullness of time had come, again, when the time was perfect, the Son of God would be born in a manger. Remember that story? And he would bring with him the promise of life to a dead and dying world. You see, this plan that God put into place is more of, a, of the plan than just thinking that, okay, God one day thought, I'm going to send my son to the earth. And he's going to be born of a virgin. And he's going to live among us. And then after so long, we're going to put him on a cross and we're going to crucify him for the sins of the people. It was more detailed than that. This plan was so intricate that it even involved the rise and fall of great nations to prepare for his coming. What do I mean by that? Clear back in the book of Daniel, God gave King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon this baffling dream. And the king couldn't figure out what was going on. And he called all his guys in and tried to get them to explain what was happening. And no one could do it. No one could tell this king what this dream meant. Finally, someone told the king, there's this kid named Daniel. You need to call him. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that his dream, in his dream, he saw this giant statue. And it says, its head was made of pure gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs were of iron, and its feet were a mixture of iron and clay. He says, well, Nebuchadnezzar watched a rock was cut out of this mountain, not by human hands, he says. This rock struck the statue at its feet and broke the image into pieces. It says, in its place, the rock transformed into a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. And Daniel explains to King Nebuchadnezzar that the head of this gold uh, represented his kingdom, everything that he saw, the kingdom that he ruled. Then Daniel said to him in Daniel 2.39, he says, After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Think about that. In other words, the kingdom had a chest and arms made of silver, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians when you look at it. And then... A third kingdom, he says, of one of bronze will rule over the whole earth in Daniel 2.39, the second part. And this was the empire of Alexander the Great that created for Greece. But even his kingdom will be replaced. And then finally in verse 40 of Daniel chapter 2, he says, Finally there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and the iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. That was the entire Roman Empire, which ruled Judea, where Jesus was born. And then talking about the rock that had been cut out of the mountain, Daniel declares this in verse 44. He said, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left for another people. 
It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. It will itself endure forever. This kingdom that God is establishing. You see, all the biblical prophecy and all the biblical history was focused on one event, that in the fullness of time, all this would take place. That God would send his son, again, born of a virgin, born under the law into the world. That when this child was born, he would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And that's what the angel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 33. He says, Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. It says his kingdom will never end. Just a prophecy of what's about to happen. See, this kingdom that's being established when Jesus comes to earth is the church, which began on the day of Pentecost, less than two weeks after Jesus ascended into heaven. That this church that we're talking about is God's church, God's family. Those of us that hopefully one day will be in heaven with him. And that's why God spent so much time, and at just the right time, working with the nations of this world. He wanted to make sure that everything was ready for the coming of Jesus. That when Jesus was born, everything would be ready. But why did it take God so long to get things ready? You ever think about that? The God who created the heavens and the earth in seven days took centuries to prepare for this baby. Why? I don't know. <laughs> it's a good question. I really don't know. Why it took I can't find the answer. But I don't know why he did the way he did it. But I do know that when the time had come for Jesus to be born, the world was primed and ready for him. When Jesus was born, for the first time in human history, everything was right for God to spread his message for mankind. You see, when Jesus was born, and you have to kind of look back, and I know this is kind of history, and this may be boring to some people, but I thought this was really cool, that when Jesus was born, there was a universal government in place that Rome ruled the entire nation, the world. In fact, the entire Roman world, the empire, produced one of the longest periods of universal peace after Jesus was born. Universal peace. And in fact, it was so unique that historians still refer to this as the peace of Rome. That after Jesus was born, and Rome not only produced a lasting peace, they created this universal system of roads throughout the empire, the first of its kind. And throughout the Roman Empire, there was a universal language that practically everyone knew and used, and that was the Greek language. And God used that one language to spread the gospel after he was born. You see, there was one government at that time. There was one peace, one system of roads, one language shared by all. And this was brought into being by one God who sent his one son at this one time in history to save a world filled with the one cause, despair and death, that is our sin. Jesus came into a world to deal with our sin, to deal with that sin, with their sin, your sin, our sin, my sin. You see, God gave us the promise of new life through his son. This new life that we receive when we receive him as Christ and our Savior, but also this new life we have one day in heaven with him. And he filled his scripture with these prophecies describing what his son would accomplish and could accomplish if we will let him. And God spent centuries fulfilling that promise, fulfilling those prophecies, and putting his plan into effect and he did it, get this, he did it all 
for you. All this planning, all these prophecies, all these things that he put into place, and at just that right time, he did all of this for you, for us. Galatians 4, 5 tells us that God did all, all that to redeem us so that we might receive the full rights as sons and daughters. We're coming upon Christmas. And at Christmas times, it seems like anything and everything is possible. You know, what a kid wants, a kid gets, you know. And being a, a, a father uh, for several years now, but also being a new grandfather, I know what I'll do for my kids and my grandkids as, as well as you will. Uh, and you'll do about anything, right? Christmas comes, presents are there, and what happens? They tear off the package, they rip open the boxes, they take the toys out and play with the box. You know, we know that. So you have to kind of ask yourself, you know, okay, this gift that we gave that they just really wanted, and they play with it for a day, a couple days, three days, maybe a month or two, and if you're lucky, they like it in a year, okay? But that happens. But I also think about my daughter's, I think about my granddaughters, and I think about how much I love them and what I'll do for them, that I'll go to the ends of the world for them. And if you know me, you know I love babies. You know, little Betsy's going to be talking to me over here before long. She'll be answering me. And, you know, I love that little girl. I really do. I love her smile. I love her personality. I love everything that, you know. And I would probably do about anything for her because it's just that even though I'm not allowed to babysit even though I'm not allowed to have her by myself <laughs> it just hurts a little bit <laughs> but there's a difference because she's not mine to raise is she that's Josh and Allison's job but it's also our job as a church but I think my daughters and my granddaughters it's up to me to kind of Direct them a little bit more because they're my children. Understand, that's what God is telling us this morning. That he wants us to be his children. And if he'll do all this to send his son for us, centuries of things to happen just for you, imagine what he'll do for you. If he'll do this for the world that hates him for the most part, how much more he's willing to do for us. But when God gave his son... Understand, this was a gift that was going to last forever. This gift was going to last forever. We would never outgrow this gift. We will always need this gift. His love for us will never break down. It will never wear out. It will never get lost. It will never be put over in a corner unless we decide to do it. But God's gift is there forever. What God has offered us in Jesus wasn't some toy that would eventually be cast to a side. What he was offering was this relationship that based upon his gift and his son. In fact, in verse 5 of Galatians 4, it says, In Jesus, in Jesus, we have become sons of God. We've become sons of God. Again, your family, my family. One of the most powerful verses in the Bible is found in Romans 8.32 where Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, God sent his son to earth for us that we might become his children, become his heirs. And if God went to all that trouble to make us his children, he is more than willing to do whatever it takes to get us into heaven with him. In fact, Ephesians 3.20 tells us that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That's what's at work in us. Please understand, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem did not save us. Catch that. The birth of Christ in Bethlehem did not save us. His birth in the manger was just the beginning of God's plan. That's how he delivered this baby. This is how he delivered the plan for us. In Christmas, we find the promise of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins in the fullness of time. You see, it wasn't until three days after Jesus rose from the death, that's what saved us, the resurrection of Jesus. We find those promises in the fullness of time. God sent his son to be born in Bethlehem. That's the spring, the green that we're talking about. That's the newness that comes when we're looking forward to after a long, hard winter. You see, some 30 years later, his death, burial, and resurrection would bring life to a dead and decaying world. And I want you to understand that's the true message of Christmas. And this message should shape how we look at every image of Christmas. Go enjoy it. Go enjoy the lights. Go enjoy all the festivities. Go and do all those things. But please remember what Christ did for us, what God did for us when he sent his son. One man described it this way, how he saw things. I'm going to close with this. He says, when I see the Christmas tree, I'm reminded that the first Adam took the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and sinned against the holy God. But 1 Corinthians 15 tells me that the second Adam, Jesus, took the fruit of that sin and bled and died on another tree to pay that price of sin. He says, when I smell the scent of evergreen, I'm reminded that the new life I enjoy because of what Jesus did on the cross, which gives me everlasting life. He says, the ornaments hanging on the tree also remind me of what Jesus had done for me. He says, when I see the red ones, I think about the blood of Jesus that was shed for my salvation. He says, the silver and gold remind me of God's blessings in my life. He says, and the candy cane reminds me that Jesus is the good shepherd. The white stripes remind me that Jesus was sinless. The red stripes that he shed his blood for me. Both collars of the stripes on the candy cane should remind us that our spiritual healing comes only through his stripes, which were caused by the beatings he took at his crucifixion. Then he says, on top of the tree. We have a star, but he says, reminds me of the angel that's there and the responsibility to tell the world that Jesus has come, just as the angel of old did with the shepherds. You see, all these things we have at Christmas should remind us of what Christ did for us. And I don't know about you, but winter really hasn't started. It really hasn't hit us yet. But there's going to be those days, it's going to be cold, it's going to be snow, it's going to be gray, and we're going to, in the back of our minds, if not a forethought, think, man, I can't wait for spring. I can't wait for the newness to bloom again. 
And you know, that's kind of where a lot of us are at today. You know, we, we, we look at our life and we look at all the things happening in our life. And, you know, I look back over the last two or three, four weeks with the Kilbys. And I also know what's going on with uh, the Borgwald's niece. Uh, she has cancer. I heard word that somebody else this found out they have cancer this week. You know, you think about all those things. And I think about that's the winter. That's the coldness and the bite of the winter. But I also know that as believers, we have this hope. And that's what I hope we understand this morning, that it gives us this hope of eternal life.